welcome to the seventh episode of One Christian Things, a podcast that examines current events, politics, worldview, and ideologies from an explicitly Christian perspective. I'm your host, Mike Hutton. If this is your first time listening, I ask that you press pause and listen to the first episode, where I introduce the show, my motivations, and give some guiding principles. In this episode, We'll be discussing COVID-19, and instead of just debating policy, which can be endless, I want to develop some principles through which to view this crisis, and perhaps others as well. When talking to people about COVID, what else is there to talk about these days, am I right? I heard a lot of different ideas. They ranged anywhere from, I don't care about government intervention, I'm going to do my own thing, to, I will strictly follow all government guidelines and take my own measures to make sure neither I nor anyone around me has any risk. Somewhere in the middle of this spectrum are the people who think, the government interventions are silly, but the government is doing what they can, so I'll listen. Or those who think, All Christians must wear masks because we're supposed to care for one another. And on the subject of churches meeting during the pandemic, the opinions range from the lockdowns are persecution, the churches must remain open because the government has no authority to dictate how the churches can worship, to churches should follow government guidelines, to churches should only do virtual meetings. We don't want to spread the virus. As Christians, let's do our part to stop it. Basically, a ton of different opinions. It's easy to understand that some people, instead of forming their own opinions, just lament the fact that Christians are so divided on what realistically should be a a side issue. With this episode, rather than come out and make a statement on what I believe is right and wrong for Christians to do during the pandemic, I'm going to try to create some unity. I want to lay out some principles, ideas that we should all be able to agree on. These principles apply regardless of your position, regardless of your political persuasion, regardless of what church you call home, and even regardless of the socio-political situation, be it a personal battle or a global crisis. The three principles I want to talk about are these. First, there is only one absolute truth and every other truth claim or source of information can, and even should be, questioned and examined. Second, as Christians, we are only to fear one thing, and everything else that threatens us should be viewed from that perspective. And third, regardless of the earthly situation, we still have our roles or duties as Christians to act in a God-honoring manner living out his revealed will as best as we can. None of these principles should be controversial. In fact, I think most Christians would kind of say, duh, why are you even mentioning this? I want to talk about this because I find that these basic principles often get lost in the confusion around mask mandates, concerns of government overreach, or worries of the next wave. So I want to dig into each one of these principles on its own to examine it more fully. The first principle, there is only one absolute truth and every other truth claim or source of information can and even should be questioned or examined. 
This one absolute truth is, of course, the gospel, God's word. This has long been a central tenet of Christianity, which makes perfect sense. If you don't believe the gospel, as revealed to us in God's word, to be true, then can you really call yourself a Christian? Perhaps one episode I will dig into the reasons that I believe God's word to be true, but for now, as Christians, I think it's safe to start with that as a basic assumption. That was the easy part of the first principle. Now, the more difficult and perhaps controversial part. Every other truth claim or source of information can, and even should be, questioned and examined. So specifically with regards to COVID, there seems to be three sources of information. These are the media in general, the politicians, and the so-called experts. I want to examine each of these in turn, but before we do, I want to point out something that they all have in common. None of them have an inherent interest in telling the absolute truth of a situation. That might seem like a, a bit of a bold claim, but let's start with the media. As I'm sure we've all had experience with, the media often publicizes stories that will evoke an extreme response from us. And often, not always, but often, that response is fear or worry. That's where the old adage comes from. If it bleeds, it leads. And the reason for this is simple. We're far more likely to pay attention to the things that threaten us or make us afraid. We do this almost automatically. The hope is that if we pay attention to that which makes us afraid, we'll hopefully be more prepared to deal with it so that the threat is minimized. Whether it's a, a snapping, lunging dog or a news report on the latest super virus, the more immediate and dangerous a threat is, the more likely you will pay attention to it to protect yourself from it. So media companies, whether, whether it's a, a traditional print newspaper, an online blog, cable news or a YouTube commentator, they all use extreme headlines or graphics to grab your attention in an effort to get you to watch, click, read, because that's how they make their money. Of course, media companies can't come straight out and lie and make up some sort of extreme story to grab your attention because consumers will catch on to that and start ignoring those stories. Although in today's world, those lies actually seem pretty commonplace. What's far more successful is if a media company can take a true story and spin it in such a way that it sounds as extreme as possible. So behind the crazy mind-blowing headline is a story that is mundane and almost boring. But hey, they got you to read it, so they made their money. You might be tempted to think right-wing media does it more or left-wing media does it more, depending on your own political persuasion. But the principle, but the principle applies to any media, and I've seen it all over the place. So maybe it's CBC Radio reporting on how the infection rates of COVID are skyrocketing during the second wave, but failing to mention that death rates are barely rising at all. Or it's rebel media reporting on an instance of government overreach, but failing to mention the intricacies of the situation that would change the narrative. Both left and right-wing media do it. Of course they do. That's how they make money but it also means we can't necessarily trust them to tell the simple facts about a situation, whether it's COVID or something else. 
Now onto the politicians. In general, in the West, we seem to have some pretty contradictory ideas about politicians. Perhaps we think that the politicians who are on our side, those are the good guys. They're honest. They, they want to do the right thing. It's the other guys we have to worry about. They're the liars, the cheats. Or we mumble about how the government is all dishonest. They're all a little crooked. They, they don't really care like they say they do. But then during times of crisis, we flip and say that they're doing the best they can. They're trying to do the right thing. So I want to make it very clear. Beyond a very small minority who still believe in an absolute morality, politicians don't necessarily have an intrinsic desire to tell the truth or even to do the best thing for their people. That's just part of living in a fallen world with sinful people. Politicians in general are rational people who are most interested in doing not what's best for their people, but what's best for them. Often, that means securing votes for the next election or gaining support to secure a promotion or a position on a committee that would give them increased power and responsibility. It doesn't mean doing the right thing, because the right thing is surprisingly unpopular. One example of this is minimum wage. An increased minimum wage is a terrific political policy. That is, if you want to secure votes from minimum, minimum wage workers, it's really not much good for anything else. In fact, the actual effect of a minimum wage increase is that those minimum wage workers often have their hours decreased or they lose their jobs because it's not worth it for their employer to pay them the increased wage. This is a very reliable effect which has been confirmed over and over. While increasing the minimum wage sounds great, it actually hurts the people it claims to help. So, a politician might campaign on increased minimum wage to secure votes, even though the actual policy is not good for the voters. One easy example with COVID is that, as soon as a select few experts started recommending masks, any politician that did not do the same was castigated for not caring about people. If, as a politician, you dared to not make masks mandatory, then you became responsible for the people who died in your area. So, of course, if a politician wants to avoid that controversy, controversy and show themselves as a caring person, regardless of what they actually think about masks, they're just going to make masks mandatory. No, this is not an argument against masks. This is just a simple realization that public opinion and discourse can sway how a politician acts. Secondly, a crisis can actually help political leaders, at least if they didn't create the crisis. This also might seem counterintuitive, but it's called the rally around the flag phenomenon. And usually it refers to a short-term increase in approval ratings for political leaders after the start of a crisis. This has previously been identified following terrorist attacks or the start of international wars, but has also been identified with COVID-19, the first time it has been seen with a pandemic. The reason for this is rather simple. During a crisis, people look to a leader for direction, for calm, for hope, and in general, for a way through the crisis. 
Justin Trudeau filled this role quite well during the first months of COVID, addressing the country daily, showing a calm determination. And his approval ratings went up, even though at the same time his political party was mired in scandal and controversy. Likewise, approval ratings for political leaders from other countries, such as the UK, Australia, and Germany, also went up. Now, I'm not attacking Trudeau here, just using him as an example to explain the phenomenon. Interestingly, perhaps even humorously, Donald Trump was one politician who didn't really see a rise in popularity with the crisis. He only gained a four-point boost in his ratings. Besides Trump, the effect can actually be quite large, and in the case of COVID-19, it can give a politician up to a 61-point gain. That's a massive swing in popularity. And maybe, just maybe, that might tempt a politician to capitalize on a global crisis. And maybe, the politician might be tempted to distort the crisis, make it seem worse than it actually is, to get that approval rating to slide just a little bit higher. With this point, I'm not condemning all government. I'm not saying all government is bad. This is just the reality of being governed by sinful people. It's also pretty easy to understand that so-called experts might also be tempted to distort a crisis. First, if, for example, Dr. Fauci in the US or Theresa Tam in Canada early on predicted that the virus would only kill 500 people, what would happen? Well, no one would worry about it. The death toll would grow way past their estimate. And a few months later, they would probably be out of a job. If, on the other hand, they predict that the virus will kill 50,000 or 500,000 people and massive government intervention is put in place to stop the virus and the death toll is actually only a fraction of what they predicted, they might just be lauded as heroes for convincing the government to intervene on something so deadly. One great example of experts predicting a future far worse than what actually happened is with historical climate change predictions. I've linked a webpage in the show notes, which has a number of newspaper clippings from the last 60 years or so. I'm not saying global warming or climate change is not real. I want to save that issue for another episode. But in this case, it's, it's pretty humorous and a bit relieving to see how wrong the experts were. In the late 60s, a scientist from Stanford predicted that we would all disappear in a cloud of blue steam in 20 years. Well, over 50 years later, we're, we're still here. And then in the 70s, it was all about the coming ice age. In 2004 even, Britain was supposed to have a Siberian climate by 2020. But then, in 2008, it was predicted that the Arctic would be ice-free by 2018. I think we can all be relieved that, in those cases, the experts were all wrong. Bringing it back to the idea that people focus on what's, what threatens them, it kind of makes sense that experts might use a little hyperbole now and then. Look out, there's, there's a big bad boogie monster just over the horizon. And, and if you give me more money, I'll be able to figure out what we can do to make sure it doesn't eat us. I, I just need some more money to figure it all out. Now, I'm not saying that I'm a climate change denier. Like I said, I want to save that discussion. And I'm also not saying that Dr. Fauci is wrong. All that I'm pointing out is that it's okay 
to be skeptical of the experts. So in all these cases, with the media, the politicians, and the experts, they don't necessarily have a vested interest to give a completely accurate picture of what's going on. In fact, in many cases, they might even be motivated to stretch the truth, make things seem just a little bit worse than they actually are. The slightly manufactured crisis might just grab another person's attention and sell another newspaper, or bump their approval rating up another few points, or secure funding for the next year. Again, I have no intention of downplaying the seriousness of COVID-19. These same ideas apply to people on both sides of the aisle, whether the crisis is a global pandemic, or the crisis is massive government overreach during a pandemic. Both sides might be, be, might be guilty of the same thing. A little bit of careful hyperbole to get people's attention. Contrast that now with God's word. Of course, it doesn't mention COVID-19 anywhere in the Bible, but it does say in Romans 8 verse 28, We know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. No matter what the crisis, whether it's a global pandemic that threatens to kill millions and causes massive suffering both in society at large and in our personal lives, or a tyrannical government, God is still in control. And not only that, but he's working all things, all things, including tyranny or virus, for the good of those who love him. We might not understand how, but that's part of the absolute truth of God's word. What a beacon of light in an ocean of darkness and chaos. Which leads into the second principle. The second principle is that as Christians, we are only to fear one thing, and everything else that threatens us should be viewed from that perspective. Luke 12, verse 4 to 5. Jesus said to the people, I tell you, my friends, don't be afraid of people. They can kill the body, but after that they can do nothing more to hurt you. I will show you the one to fear. You should fear God, who has the power to kill you and also to throw you into hell. Yes, he is the one you should fear. Or Psalm 46, verse 1 to 3. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. We are called to not fear anything in this world. Or, perhaps a better way of putting it, is that even in spite of the things that threaten us, we have a higher hope. Because things will threaten us. It's part of living in a fallen world that things will make us afraid. I'm not trying to minimize people's anxiety or fear of COVID at all. Anyone who knows me closely knows that, I've, that I have had to work with substantial and at times nearly overwhelming anxiety in my own life. But the very reason that the Bible has so many texts that deal with fear and anxiety, I think, is because God knows we will have to deal with it. But at the same time, we have a hope that transcends it. We know that this life is only temporary, and death is merely a gateway to the eternal. Yes, fear and anxiety will happen in this life, but we must put the things that threaten us 
into the right perspective. Romans 8, verse 35 to 39. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity, or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can we do this perfectly? Of course not. But we have the hope that means we do not have to stay in our anxiety. It's something we are called to continually work on. One passage that specifically talks to me on this point is in Philippians 4, verse 6 to 7. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Even in our anxious moments, when things threaten us, We can still rest in the hope we have, which goes beyond this world and the grave. And then we can say with Paul in Philippians 1 verse 21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor labor for me. Yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. My desire is to depart, to die, and be with Christ. That's what he says there. What, a, what an amazing testimony of faith. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Not fear, but gain. Bringing this principle back to our situation, we can also reflect on how God is working in the here and now. Because he is working through the virus as well. The virus is causing a lot of fear in many people. Perhaps it's a fear of suffering, perhaps it's a fear of death, perhaps it's fear of losing a loved one. But Christianity can speak to all of those fears. Christianity has the answer. In the middle of the virus, Christianity can and does provide the hope that so many people need. At the same time, the fear of government overreach and looming tyranny is gripping people on the other side of the aisle. But even there, Christianity provides hope. It is when a country is most free and most prosperous that people slide away from God because they feel like they don't really need him. But it's under a tyranny. When people know they can no longer trust themselves, the people around them, or the government, that they turn back to God in search of hope. Look at where the church is growing most rapidly right now. The two countries that top the list are Iran and Afghanistan. Both countries are Islamic republics where converting to Christianity is actually illegal. Both countries have been hotbeds of terrorist activities and been centers of Middle East conflicts for many years. And that's where Christianity grows the fastest, 
where it's suppressed the most, where it's illegal, where the government is most tyrannical. Regardless of what will happen with the pandemic and the government intervention, over the next months and years, Christianity has the answers. Christianity has the hope that everyone needs. And we, as Christians, have our mission field. We do not have to fear what will happen because we have God on our side controlling it all. Easier said than done? Yes, much easier said than done. But that's the hope that we have. We can apply this idea to our earthly life as well. If our personal life, community life, or political life is guided by fear, our world becomes very focused and very small. We no longer have any eye for opportunity, creativity, or new ideas. When guided by fear, we become hemmed in on all sides, and our focus is only on that which makes us afraid. So, for example, if I'm attacked by a dog, my focus in that instant is to get away from the dog to stop the threat. And that's, that's okay. That's a good thing. But then, if the dog attack shook me so badly that I'm afraid of all dogs for the rest of my life, that fear has closed me off from ever enjoying a pet dog. Another example is someone who suffers from agoraphobia. Agoraphobia is the fear of being in a situation where you can't escape or get help if something goes wrong. This is a pretty extreme anxiety disorder, but it helps us show what I'm talking about. Someone with agoraphobia might start out by being afraid of public transportation, because if something goes wrong, if they embarrass themselves, there's no easy way out, no easy way to hide from other people. So they avoid buses and taxis and trains. But then the anxiety develops. So they're afraid of grocery stores and shopping malls. If they trip and fall, well, there's people around. There's no easy way to hide or escape. And they'll appear shameful in front of everyone. It can continue to develop to the point that that individual is trapped inside their own house. An extreme example, yes, but it shows how being guided by fear can basically close you off from life. And when you're closed off from life, death is not far away. This happens at the individual level. It also happens at the societal level. If society or politics is guided by fear, the collapse and death of that, so that society is not far away. What the society has to learn to do is not be guided by the fear, but operate in spite of the fear. For the person with extreme agoraphobia, this means, with the help of a therapist, that they must confront their fears. If they're trapped inside their house, the therapist might take them out to stand on their driveway, and they stand there until the individual gets bored. Because if you're bored, there's no threat. And then instead of standing on the driveway, they go and stand on a street corner. Again, until the individual is bored. And this develops slowly, but eventually, the person who used to have agoraphobia gets kind of bored in the grocery store. And perhaps even after riding around on public transit for eight hours, they get bored of that too. And then they're no longer agoraphobic. And they're no longer guided by fear. They learn to operate in spite of it. And then they overcame it. Of course, this is not an easy process. 
it would be tremendously frightening in between the boring parts. And it would seemingly take forever, months, maybe years. But you might ask, aren't you contradicting yourself? On one hand, we have to fear God. We have to essentially live in fear of that one aspect. But on the other hand, we're to not live in fear. We must live in spite of fear. That sounds contradictory. No, it's not. It's not contradictory. Because the fear of God is the only fear that brings life, not death. How? If we live in fear of God, live in fear of the God who has the power to kill us and also throw us into hell, as Jesus said, that forces us to realize our sinfulness, our depravity. God is perfect in justice, and none of us can stand before him on our own. But what that does is turn us to the gospel. It focuses us on Christ. Because in Christ and through his death on the cross, that is the only way we can stand before God, no longer children of wrath that deserve his condemnation, but children of God, adopted into his family, purified from all our sins. And it is in that that we have life. We can pursue opportunities. We can be creative. We can live as God's image bearers. Being guided by fear of earthly things brings death. But fear of God brings life. Which leads me into the final principle that regardless of the earthly situation, we still have our roles or duties as Christians to act in a God-honoring manner, living out his revealed will as best as we can. This is the principle that perhaps is the hardest to actually discuss and the one that gets the most twisted. This is where people disagree with each other. I saw many articles early on when the mask controversy had just started that argued all Christians must wear masks out of love for our neighbor. But there was also the opposite view, not so widely stated, but practiced quietly because it was not socially acceptable. The view that, as a Christian, I'm going to ignore social distancing because loneliness and despair are very real particularly during a government-mandated lockdown. I'm showing love for my neighbor by ignoring social distancing. To live is more than just staying alive. I'm not going to give a prescription for Christian living in the middle of a pandemic. I could tell you my position, but I won't, because that would be akin to giving a prescription. Instead, I want to encourage you, regardless of what side you're on, to consider the other side. So I'm going to highlight just a few things about the virus. First, it's more deadly than the flu. Now, I know that I'm kind of going against one of my own principles here by trusting the experts, but according to the Center for Disease Control, which probably gives the best numbers we have, for anyone above 50, it's significantly more deadly than the flu. Statistically, for people over the age of 70, Five out of 100 people who get COVID will also die with it. Not necessarily die from it, but it will be a factor in their death compared to eight out of 1,000 people. So five out of 100 versus eight out of 1,000 people with the flu. For people between the ages of 50 and 69, five out of 1,000 people will die with, with COVID. Between the ages of 20 and 49, two out of 10,000 people will die. And for those under 20, 3 out of 100,000 people will die. 
So for anyone over 50, it's significantly more deadly than the flu. And for anyone under 50, it's about the same. But it's also way more transmissible. So it will spread more quickly, which is why there was a fear of it overwhelming the healthcare system. So it is a deadly virus, particularly for the elderly. And it also spreads quickly. We have to be very cognizant of that. For young people, it's, it's really not a significant risk beyond the everyday risks we already experience by just being alive. Second point, there's a study that is really not getting a lot of airtime, but it's very important. This was a study done by the Virginia Commonwealth University School of Medicine. They looked at the excess deaths during COVID-19 in the United States. The United States yearly death rate is, is remarkably stable and can be used to determine expect, expected death rates in the future. It just doesn't change much. So the expected death rate for March 1st to August 1st of this year without COVID or another catastrophe would be 1,111,031. So about 1.1 million March, April, May, June, July. But with COVID-19, the actual number was over 1.3 million for a total of about 225,000 excess deaths. These are deaths beyond what would normally be expected. Over 225,000 people, extra people, died in that time period because of COVID-19, approximately a 20% increase. That's very significant. But what's more significant is that only two-thirds of those excess deaths can be attributed to the virus. In only two out of three of those cases, the person who died had the virus. Some of the remaining excess deaths may be attributed to undiagnosed cases, but the researchers found that a majority of the remaining excess deaths were caused indirectly by the pandemic because of the lockdown. These would include situations like, and I quote, acute emergencies, chronic diseases like diabetes that were not properly cared for, or emotional crises that led to overdoses and suicides. So, for every two people who died of the virus, one person died because of the virus, because of the lockdowns restricting healthcare, because of depression that couldn't be addressed, because of increased drug use. Of course, this doesn't lead to an obvious policy solution, but the unintended consequences of the lockdowns, social distancing, and other interventions are very real. They're killing one person for every two people that are killed by the virus. Third point. There was recently a group of elderly people who lived at a nursing home in Colorado who protested the lockdowns that kept them out of physical contact with the people they loved. This is a group of people from the highest risk group protesting the lockdown. One of the signs apparently read something like this. I'd rather die of COVID-19 than loneliness. Yes, this is just one protest, but it's something to be very aware of because there's more to life than just staying alive. The last two points are reflected in the Great Barrington Declaration which essentially argues that the lockdowns are doing more harm than good. The declaration which, at time of writing, 
has been signed by more than 11,000 medical and public health scientists and more than 30,000 medical practitioners, advocates for all people who are not in the highest risk groups to return to life like normal. No social distancing, no masks. I'm not going to read it here, but I'll leave a link to it in the show notes for those who are interested. But again, none of this is a prescription for how to act. We have a lot of information at hand, and a lot of it is confusing and contradictory and makes it near impossible to come to a personal decision on how to respond, despite the desire of so many people to create prescriptions and rules for others. I don't believe that's necessary. If you go back to my second episode, I also don't believe that as Christians, we simply have to obey the government no matter what they say. Rather, and this is the point that I want to end on, it's a point that I've brought up before, we have to act out of faith. That's from Romans 14 verse 23. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. I'll just read some of the context of that passage very quickly because I think it applies. Paul is talking about eating meat that was previously deemed unclean in the Old Testament, but he also applies it to the rest of our actions. So starting in verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This should be a unifying principle, not a dividing one. We are to act in all things in faith, not fear, but faith. Not fear of COVID, not fear of government tyranny, but faith. Your faith is between you and God. It's a heart issue, only fully known to you and God. And even in that, we're not supposed to act in such a way that we no longer care at all about what other people think and cause our brother to stumble because of our actions. There's no obvious balance here, and I think we have to be aware that acting out of faith will look different in different situations. That's why this should be unifying. If in the early church, there were disagreements about eating unclean meat, something which I think for many of us seems so obvious today, then certainly we'll also have disagreements that actually lead to differences in our daily life. Your faith life might look different than mine. And the church that I go to might do things a little bit differently than another. We know that, and biblically, as long as we're all acting out of faith and with care for our brother, it shouldn't be an issue. So, for John MacArthur's church, it might be blatantly disobeying the government and opening the doors. For another church, it might mean doing only virtual services if they believe that opening the doors would bring discredit to the gospel they are preaching. For one individual, it might mean taking extra safety measures to ensure they minimize risk to themselves and others. But for another individual, it might mean ignoring government mandates and putting themselves at risk for the sake of others. But in all this, we must, as Christians, act out of faith, not fear, in the situation God has placed us. 
not in another situation, but in our own. For the next episode, I think the next one's going to be a little different. I want to take a look at the symbolism behind some of the COVID-19 interventions. This is something that I sort of just became aware of. I find it very interesting. It's not something that I'm an expert in at all. But the idea is that symbolism can help us to understand the meaning of things around us. Since uh, one way that meaning is conveyed or developed is through patterns, and patterns can ultimately be represented by symbols. I'll get a little bit more into this next episode, but for those who are interested in learning more, look up Jonathan Pajot on YouTube. I'll leave a link to his channel in the show notes. He talks a lot about symbolism and how that brings meaning to our daily lives. It's, it's very interesting stuff. I don't agree with everything he says, but symbolism is another way to help us understand things. So I want to dig into that a little bit more, specifically around the pandemic. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, like, share, subscribe. Feel free to find the One Christian Thinks Facebook page. I'd love it if you'd leave a comment or share it with other people. More importantly though, have these conversations with other people in your life. Even in our society where there is so much backlash against Christians and social conservatism, there is a growing movement of people who want to discuss, to develop, grow, and seek the truth. So I encourage you to have these conversations. You never know what effect they might have. Also, if you want to contact me, you can do that as well through the Facebook page or by email. My email is oct at allmail.net. That's OCT, which stands for One Christian Thinks, at A-L-L-M-A-I-L dot net. That's it for today. Thanks for listening, and until next episode, keep thinking.